0: All right, it's uh, good to be back with you guys this morning. As Josh said, I was here a couple times before, um, so it is good to be back. And we try and um, keep Prairie View in the loop of what's going on with us. Um, Part of the reason you guys have supported us, um, and we've appreciated that, and it's been uh, cool just to have you guys partner with us. Um, We've really been encouraged by what we've seen God doing in Lafayette. Um, uh, The church, about 75-80% college students, Um, Just to give you an update of where we're at, and again, this is just a a God thing, and and really, you guys have invested in this in more ways than you know. Um, The last Sunday, when we had students um, around for this semester, had over 250 people worshiping with us. We've had 30 people baptized in the two and a half years we've been going. Um, And honestly, a lot of that is because of your support and the things I was able to um, just learn and work on here, and so you have a very big hand in what God's doing in Lafayette. Uh, we're just excited about that. So, uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 11 this morning. Okay. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there. It's going to be up on the screen too. So you can follow along that way. Uh, but we're going to be in Mark chapter 11. Um, and we're going to be starting in verse, uh, 12 Mark 11 starting verse 12. I'm going to pray. Uh, we'll jump in and get going. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you so much for the time that we have now to gather and to worship. Uh, Father, we just uh, pray that you would uh, be at work in our hearts this morning as we uh, gather and open your word, God, that you would speak to us through um, just this instruction about what it means to really follow you and what it looks like uh, to live this life of following you. Father, that you would help us pick out, are there areas in our life where we've replaced following you uh, with something that's easier to do? And so, Father, we just ask for your help this morning as we try and apply uh, Mark 11. Uh, Father, we pray that this would honor and glorify you. We ask this all in your Son's name. Amen. All right. Well, as we get going this morning, uh, just to kind of set up where we're going. So we're going to get to Mark 11, but to give you an idea of where we're going, uh, just thinking through this question up front, that most of you have probably noticed this, and I'll just incriminate myself. I'm not asking you to, to say anything, but usually it's easier to, to solve a surface-level issue than it is to deal with the real problem. That when we have uh, real issues that come up, something that needs to be dealt with, usually it's easier uh, to just do something simple to cover up the problem than it is to actually deal with the problem. For example, I've got a three-year-old and a two-year-old at home. now. four-year-old. I've got a four-year-old and one that will be three next month at home now. And between them and the dog, I've given up on clean carpets. Okay? And some of you get what I'm talking about, that... Uh, My wife's even asked me like it's time to replace them I'm like we've got five years before the dog's dead and they're old enough that we don't have to worry about it So we're waiting that out, but there have been times And not that any of you have ever done this that something gets spilled something gets knocked over What should I do? I should get the carpet cleaner out. We should scrub it. We should make it nice We should take care of the problem and what it's easier to slide the coffee table over not that any of you would ever do this why is the coffee table, like, at the side of the room? No reason. Or a rug. so many, Maybe you've bought a rug before just because you didn't feel like cleaning the carpet. That it's easier just to cover up the problem than it is to deal with it. Not that I've ever done that, okay? Uh, but... It's easier to do that. Uh, for some people, it's easier to change something small than it is uh, to make a big change. It sounds like, from the, the main update I get from Fishers is, you guys have lost your minds over Jack in the Box, that every time I talk to somebody, it's, have you been, have you gone? There's like police out there escorting you guys around, like, it's good, okay, I'll admit it. I came in and we did that, um, whether it's Jack in the Box or not. Um, again, one of those small changes that it's easy to make, that uh, Tom Coors and I have, have quite the relationship over the tacos there. And so we'll always do that. But go, you go to a place like that and it's like, yeah, I'll have six, eight tacos. They're cheap, right? So you can do quite a bit. The dessert churros are good. And so you order all of this food and then I've done this. Okay. Again, not anybody else, but then you make that statement like, I'll get a diet Coke because I want to be careful. Right. And so not that, not putting that on anybody, okay? But you make that small change. It's like I'm gonna diet coke. I'm working on this, and we kind of ignore everything else that's going on, right? Okay. Usually, this kind of thinking is not a big deal. Okay. We make these small changes. It makes us feel better about big things that we need to work on, and usually, it's not that big of a deal. But when you get to your spiritual life, it can become a problem. It can become a problem when we start to make small changes that make us feel better about uh, big changes that need to happen in our life. Big things that we need to try and change or get fixed. And for a lot of people, and I've done this too, there are little things that I can practically do that make me feel a lot better about the big changes that I need to make in my life. And it's kind of that out of sight, out of mind thing. That when I'm able to do something small that allows me to forget about the big change that needs to be made, it's easy for me to ignore it. And what Jesus is going to talk to his disciples about this morning and what Jesus is going to uh, show us this morning in Mark chapter 11 is that it really is easy for religious people uh, to find two or three practices that they can do that make them feel better about all of life. And because they're doing religious things, it's easy to ignore the deeper issues of are our hearts changing, is our love for God growing, Uh, that it's easy to kind of forget about those deeper issues if we're doing two or three things. That, that make us feel like we're on the right track Because as you look at the Bible And as you begin to, to look at what the Christian life should look like It really is kind of a hard thing I mean if you really look at what Jesus is asking And, and what scripture says This is what a Christian looks like And it says things like Love your enemies Pray for those who persecute you okay? That's a difficult thing to do It sounds good until there's somebody you don't like And you actually have to love them And you understand how difficult that can become you know, there's passages like honor your parents, honor your your, your mother and father, and not saying that anyone's struggling with that. But you understand how difficult that can be, that you see things about living sacrificially, giving of our money, giving of our time, giving of resources, that there really is this high bar set for this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. And this is what it looks like uh, for someone to be growing into Jesus, that we see Paul repeatedly throughout the New Testament says, this is what it looks like to be a Christian. And usually he doesn't talk about these are the things you should do. He talks about these are the things you should become, or this is what you should begin to look like. And so he talks about growing in joy and peace and patience and kindness and all of these things that it's not... All right, if you're following Jesus, do these two or three things. For Paul, it's usually, if you're following Jesus, this is what you're going to become. And this is what life should begin to look like. And that's a lot harder to measure than, am I doing the religious kind of things that I should be doing that make it look like I'm following Jesus, if that makes sense. And so I talk to a lot of people, and I've been in this place before, a lot of college students that I deal with, Where what's happened is we've redefined what it means to follow Jesus, not by the kind of person we're becoming, not by the uh, amount of love for God that's in our heart and is it growing, but we've defined it by what are the three or four things that Christian people should do. And so we've defined it by, am I in church on Sunday? Do I go to a small group? Uh, Am I serving in some area of the church? Do I turn on Caleb from time to time? That there's all these things that we look at and say, this is what a Christian person should be doing. And it's easy to then say, well, what makes me right with God? How do I know that I'm right with Jesus? How do I know that God is happy with me? And when we define it by these things that we've done, those are what we look to. And as long as we're in church and as long as we're in a small group, we can sleep at night with that feeling of, I know I'm right with God because I'm doing the right stuff. And the Bible never frames what a Christian is like that. It always frames it by, you know you're following God, one, because of what God has done, but two because of the kind of person that you're becoming. And so as we look at this this morning, here's the big idea this morning as we get into Mark chapter 11. The big idea is this, is that Jesus is going to teach this morning. He doesn't want you to be spiritually busy. He wants you to be fruitful. And those are two very different things. And there's two very different ways of getting at that, that there are a lot of people that are spiritually busy, religiously busy. But when they look at their life and you ask, What kind of fruit is coming out of that life? Maybe there's not a lot of change. Maybe there's not a lot of love for God stirring up in their heart. Maybe there's not a lot of people coming to Jesus because of their life. And Jesus is just going to kind of pull back the curtain this morning on this feeling of it's about what I do and say, no, I don't want you to just be spiritually busy, religious and busy. What I want is for you to bear fruit in your life. And I want you to change and I want love for God to grow and I want your concern for other people to grow. And he's going to show that from Mark 11. And so we'll go to Mark 11 now. Three different scenes that are going to show this this morning. First one in Mark 11:12. I'll be honest; it's a weird story up front. Okay, Mark 11:12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Talking about Jesus, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs, and he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Okay? For a lot of people that study the Gospel of Mark, a lot of them write, This looks kind of bad for Jesus. It's like the two year old that the cookies run out, and he's just upset about it, and he's going to throw a temper tantrum. And Jesus doesn't find any food on this tree, so what does he do? He curses the tree and basically kills it. Okay? And so people write, like, He's Jesus. He's done miracles. Couldn't he have, like, made figs appear? Couldn't he have, like, made a tree pop up? Like, there were better uses of his power than, fine, no more figs, you're done, and he curses this tree. And so people have asked questions, why would Jesus do this? It doesn't make any sense for Jesus to act like this. It doesn't make any sense for Jesus to treat this tree in this way because of, of what's happened. And I want to show you what's going to happen here. There's a reason that he does this, and there's a couple of clues for that. One, when Jesus says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, Mark makes the note and his disciples heard it. And I think that's intentional on Jesus' part. He wanted his disciples to hear what he was doing. He wanted to, them to see this happen. And then if you step down to verse 20, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots, and Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, The fig tree that you cursed is withered. And so in verse 12 and verse 20, Mark brings up this story of the fig tree and he uses this fig tree imagery. And here's what we're going to see this morning. That in between those two references is going to explain what's happening with this fig tree. That Mark brings it up in verse 12. He brings it up in verse 20. He helps us remember it. And you've got this story in the middle of what happens to this fig tree that's going to explain why Jesus acted like this. That's going to explain why Jesus did this to the fig tree. And so what's going on with the tree here? Uh, just in case you're unfamiliar with fig trees, which most of us probably are, but uh, just an idea. Basically from June to November, you could find figs on the tree. And they really were one of the more important things for people at this time they could go and they could eat also really leafy. So when it's hot and you need shade, you could sit under one of these and people would constantly use them for that. Most of you, with how it's been lately, you'd enjoy having something like that now. It was just an opportunity to get out of the heat. You could find something to eat. They were really useful for all the people here. But Mark even tells us, and this is what makes Jesus' reaction look even weirder. He tells us it was too early in the season for figs, and Jesus is still upset that figs aren't on the tree. And so it, it just adds to the why is he acting like this? Why is he doing this? And here's what happened with this tree. That you have this tree, the leaves were on it, there was no fruit on it. And that's going to be an important image for where we're going because this tree looked healthy and had no fruit on it. And Jesus is about to deal with a a system and a group of people that were in a very similar spot to this tree. People that looked healthy, looked like they had it all together. But when you looked at what was coming out of their life, there wasn't the same kind of fruit. And we're going to see this in the next story, how these people match up with with this tree that Jesus has cursed. And the fig tree in the Bible becomes a really important image. Okay, as you kind of trace the image of fig trees through the Bible, you find that in the time of Solomon, when he was king, it was a symbol of prosperity. That one of the ways that they marked off Solomon's reign as successful and thriving and things are well was by the abundance of fig trees and comments like, and everybody had his own fig tree to sit under. That that would mark off, hey, everyone has a fig tree, we have lots of fig trees, things are good, this reign of this king is good. But as you go later into the prophets the fig tree actually becomes a symbol of judgment for the nation of Israel. Because and I don't have this up on the screen but in Jeremiah 7:11 for example or, or sorry 8:13 this imagery of the fig tree starts to show up in the prophets. So for example in Jeremiah 8:13 Jeremiah says to the people, "When I would gather them declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine nor figs on the fig tree, even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them is passed away from them." And so God, speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, basically says, I was going to come to you, I was going to save you, I was going to be your God, but when I showed up, you were like a fig tree that didn't have any figs on it. You were my people, and I called you, and you were in the land, and it looked healthy to the people living, but when I showed up, there was no figs on the fig tree. There was no spiritual fruit. There was no love for God. You weren't living the life I had called you to live. And so Jesus, I think, drawing on this imagery, and we're going to see it in the next scene, begins to talk to the people about the reality that they find themselves in, that they had the appearance of health, that spiritually things looked like they were going well. But in reality, Jesus knew and understood that this was not a healthy thing. This was not a fruitful thing that was going on. And that leads us into what happens in Mark 11, 15 to 19. So the story with the fig tree happens and Jesus moves from there into the temple. Verse 15, And they came to Jerusalem and He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And He was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers." And so Jesus shows up at the temple and he's still upset. And I, know if he, I don't know if he didn't sleep good or he's still hungry because there were no figs on the tree. But it looks like he's just mad about the fig tree. He's mad about the temple. For whatever reason, Jesus is just upset for this section of Mark. Curses the fig tree, starts turning over tables in the temple. And so the question we want to ask is, why is Jesus so upset? In these, these verses that we've seen, that we've strung together now, there's this constant of Jesus is angry, Jesus is upset. And so the question we want to ask is, why was he so upset? The main issue that Jesus is dealing with here is he turns over tables, as he lets these animals loose in the market, and as all of this is happening... Jesus wasn't upset that things were being sold in the temple and that's uh, some people believe that that the issue here was they shouldn't have been selling things in the church. And so I've heard stories from pastor friends of like putting the pop machine in their church and someone will write Mark 11 on a piece of paper and slap it up there. And it's like Jesus drove the money changers out. You're trying to sell pop here like it's the same kind of thing. Okay, the issue wasn't things being sold. Here's what was happening, and here I think is why Jesus was so upset, because actually they were providing a helpful service. If you can imagine this, thousands of people would flock to Jerusalem for these festivals, and thousands of people would need animals to sacrifice, and if you have kids and have traveled with kids, you know how difficult that can be, right? So up to this point, there's been a few times it's like, we should fly with our kids, and I've flown enough with like, other parents with kids to be like, mm, let's wait a little bit, okay? Let's wait for that, wait for the trip, and we, we do what we can, I I realize that I love my kids, okay? All I've said is like, they make messes and I hate traveling with them and things are good, right? I love them, but... Imagine you're walking with a family, with this extended family, and not only do you have to keep the family together and you're walking and there's nothing to keep people occupied, but everybody's also trying to travel with their own animals that they're bringing along with them for a sacrifice. Miles, you're trying to leave these donkeys, you're trying whatever it is that you've got to sacrifice, uh, lambs, goats, the people would have to be bringing these with them. And so the temple actually set up a good thing where they said, look, we're going to help everyone out and we'll sell animals that you can sacrifice at the temple. Okay, and it really was a good and helpful thing. And Josephus, who's a first century historian, said even one year, for example, there were 250,000 plus animals sacrificed at the temple during one festival. You can imagine, one, how difficult that would be to bring all those animals on their own, but also how profitable this would be for the people who were selling these animals. Okay, this was a big business kind of thing. So you had some selling animals and you had some that they refer to as the money changers. And basically when these Jews would come to the temple in Jerusalem, once a year they had to pay what was called a temple tax. To pay for the upkeep of the temple, to pay for the the services and what's going on there. And they wanted this tax paid in the closest type of money they could get to the kind of money they had in the Old Testament. And so what the money changers would do is they would take the people's Roman money, change it into this money that was closer to what they had in the Old Testament, and allow them to pay the temple tax in that way. Again, providing something that was helpful for the people as they were traveling. There may have been a little bit of... You ever tried to like eat fast food at the airport? There may have been a little bit of that going on. I don't know if you've ever tried to find the dollar menu at McDonald's at the airport it's not there, okay? And you get laughed at when you asked about it. Um, that it's that kind of thing where it's like, we know you can't eat anywhere else, so we're going to that may have been going on. I don't think that's why Jesus was so upset. The reason I think Jesus was upset about what was going on at the temple is because originally when this group had set up and they would sell the animals, they would exchange the money, it was set up across from the temple At the base of the Mount of Olives. And that's where all this would happen. So you would go, get your animal, exchange your money, come into the temple. And what had happened by 30 AD was no longer was this marketplace set up across from the temple. It was set up in the middle of the temple. And it wasn't just set up in, you know, kind of scattered throughout in one specific spot called the court of the Gentiles. This entire marketplace had set up. And so imagine this that you're going to a worship service that you want to worship God, and where you have to worship God is in the middle of Walmart on a Saturday afternoon. I don't know if you've been to Walmart on Saturday. I avoid going to Walmart on Saturday. It's just crazy with people and stuff going on and it's crowded and it's loud and all this stuff is going on. And there's this group of people, the Gentiles who who weren't Jewish, but they wanted to worship the God of Israel that were trying to worship God and pray and do their thing. And in the midst of that, you've got animals running around and people uh, buying and selling these animals and all of this is going on. And Jesus is upset because the way that the temple was being run was keeping a group of people from worshiping God. And we see this when he makes the statement that that this house was to be a house of prayer for all the nations. And at this time, it wasn't because what was happening in this place where the Gentiles were to worship was keeping them from worshiping. It would have been loud and noisy and distracting. And basically, they had set up shop and they had kept these people from worshiping. And so what was happening at uh, at this time and why Jesus is so upset is because this structure that had been set up, this temple which was intended to be a place where all people could come and they could worship God and they could uh, celebrate and give sacrifice to God. It was intended to be this thing that all people could come to. And now the way that the temple was set up and the way things were being run, it was actually keeping people from worshiping God. And so Jesus challenges the people selling uh, the animals. He challenges the money changers. He challenges the leaders at the temple that this was to be a place of prayer for all people. And you've turned it in. He says a den of robbers. You've turned it into this thing that it was never meant to be. And the reality is is that it's so easy as we start to look at uh, how their situation parallels ours. We ask the question, is it possible that... A church's or a Christian's structures or rules or practices, rather than bringing them into a growing relationship with God, actually keeps people from following God. And so, for example, some people that I've talked to I've had a chance to meet while I'm in Lafayette one guy in particular named Matt. We've gotten close. I've been inviting Matt to church, inviting Matt to church, and he's been really hesitant because he says, you know what, I've tried to go to church before, but for whatever reason, I get the idea pretty clearly that they don't want me there. And he starts to go down his list of things he's encountered, whether that's he's got a kid and he's not married, whether that's he's got tattoos, whether that's just the the look that he has. It's obvious he's different from the rest of these people. And what's happened in the places he's gone to, is rather than being a place where uh, the church says we're all here and we're all messed up and we all need Jesus and so all of us can worship. It's so easy to get into a spot where the church becomes a place where we say, unless you get your act together and look like us and do the kind of things that we do, you need to stay on the outside and when you're ready, ready to look like us, you can come in and worship with us. And that's been his experience in the churches he's tried to come to. And so we see this similar kind of thing happening in the temple. This this temple meant for the worship of God was now keeping people from worshiping God. And it's so easy for some of us in the church or for churches entirely to set up As a place originally where people should come to worship, but now because we've we've redefined who we are and what we're about, we're not just about worship, but we're about looking like this and doing the right things and having our act together, then if people can measure up to what we expect of them, they're not going to be able to come in and worship in the same way that we can. And so the same kind of thing begins to happen. Now if you're wondering why Jesus eventually gets killed in the Gospels, this is one of the best places to look. Because what he says when Jesus makes this charge at the money changers, it's not written, my house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. They were ready to kill him at this point, but because he had so much popular support, they didn't want to go after him. And the reason that they were ready to kill him at this point was this, is because the religious leaders, the people who would have heard him, Yes, they heard him make a statement that, he, that was made in the Old Testament, but when they heard that snippet, they didn't just hear the snippet, they heard everything that surrounded it. Many of these religious leaders would have had large chunks of the Old Testament memorized. They would have understood the most important parts, and Jesus makes this statement about this being a house of prayer for all the nations, and he makes it part of it from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. I'm going to have this up on the screen because it's important because this is what Jesus has done in, in, in saying that, in making that statement. He wasn't just making a statement, but he was reminding them of everything that was around that in Jeremiah 7. And if you read the rest of Jeremiah 7, here's what we see. Jeremiah 7:11 Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? And then the part he didn't say, but they would have understood. Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called to you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I gave you to you and your fathers as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. And so when Jesus quotes from Jeremiah chapter 7, he's not just quoting from Jeremiah chapter 7. The leaders who heard him would have understood. He's not just saying we've turned this into a den of robbers. He's saying that the judgment of God is coming upon this place. And you can see that in their reaction. They understand what he's doing. Verse nine, or 18, and the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking for a way to destroy him. Because again, Jesus isn't just attacking their system and what they're doing. He's saying not only is this wrong, but the judgment of God is coming on you for it. That God is going to remove his presence from this place, this place of worship that you set up. And you can understand why they would be upset and maybe the people didn't understand why Jesus was saying the kinds of things he was saying. Why was judgment coming on the temple? Why was Jesus so upset? They were doing a lot of good things and so maybe it doesn't make sense that at the temple sacrifices were being made to God. That at the temple you had prayers going up and people were really coming to worship. And to the surrounding world, this temple was a testament to everybody of who the true God was and where you worshipped him. And so these good, religious, spiritual things were constantly happening at this temple. But the problem and the reason that the judgment of God was coming upon it was that the temple housed a lot of people that were busy and religious and did Good, right kinds of things, but just like the fig tree, Jesus looked at the temple and what was going on there and said, this is something that looks really healthy and looks really spiritual, but when I look at it, I don't see a lot of fruit. And the reason that he didn't see a lot of fruit and the reason he could say things like that was because, look, you've turned this place where people were to come and worship into a marketplace and they can't worship. And if you really understood and you really loved me and were really pursuing other people, you would do everything you can to make this a place where people could come and worship. And now it's just about your power, your control, your money, keeping the people out that you don't want to be a part of it. It had the appearance of spirituality. It looked like it was uh, honoring God, but in reality, Jesus saw behind that and saw at the temple that many would show up and worship and sacrifice, but there were very few hearts that were being changed. That maybe love for God wasn't growing. Love for others weren't growing. That many would show up and make prayers and, and do the things that they were supposed to do. But again, uh, where was their uh, priorities and their mindset? Was it matching up to God? That what was intended to be this great light to draw the world to God was now keeping the world out because of the way they had set it up. And so Jesus says, you've turned this into a, a den of robbers and the judgment of God is coming on this place. And the religious system set up, like we said, was now pushing people out. And we're going to see, and you'll see this later in Mark, and you're going to see this uh, in the story now, and this is really where I think this begins to, to bear on us as people and to bear on us as Christians in the church today, that as Jesus makes these challenges to the temple and he makes these challenges to the leaders, that we've got to ask the question, do we find ourselves in a similar spot? That I talk to a lot of people, and I've been in this spot, Where you've got people doing the things they were told, this is what a Christian does, and these are the kind of things you're supposed to do, but they wrestle and they struggle because they feel like they're not changing. Okay, that I counsel people that say, I'm going to church, and they told me to go to this class, and they told me to listen to this and read this, and I'm doing all of these things, but they look at their life and they say... But I'm not changing at all. I don't feel like my heart is changing. I feel like I continue to struggle with the same sins. Why aren't these things doing what they were supposed to do? And it's because for a lot of people, just like was happening with the temple, our trust and our security is in, are we doing religious things and not? Are we trusting God to forgive us, save us, change us, and God do everything that He needs to do? A lot of the trust is in, are we doing the kinds of things that we feel like we're supposed to do? And so, like I said, I talk to people and maybe you're in this spot this morning. You're doing the right things. You're in church every Sunday, reading your Bible, going to small group, doing the kinds of things you were told that Christians do. But again, you're so frustrated for whatever reason, because life is still difficult and prayer is still hard. And you don't feel like you're growing in your love for God or other people And the reason that this is so dangerous and the reason that this becomes so scary is because you've got one group of people frustrated. They're not changing and they're doing the right stuff. But the real scary group of people is this people that they're not changing at all, but they're doing the right stuff. And because they're doing the right stuff, they have complete security that they're right with God. Why? Because they do the three or four religious things that they're supposed to do. This is the spot that a lot of people in the first century found themselves in. And we're going to see that the disciples even had this mindset that, look, we've got the temple and the temple tells us that we're right with God because God wouldn't give us the temple if we weren't right with him. And we go to worship and we go to sacrifice and we do the kinds of things that we're supposed to do. But Jesus here and in the next section is really going to pull the rug out from under the disciples and say, it's not about the things that you do. It's about your love for God. And if love for God's not growing, then you can be the most disciplined religious person in the world and Change isn't going to happen, and there's not going to be real security there. And so as we begin to look at the way that Jesus changed the way that they should be thinking, I'm going to keep going to verse 20. This is the last little section we'll look at. Verse 19, and when evening came, they went out of the city. And then verse 20, because Peter's going to ask them a question. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Here's what's happening with Peter. Here's what's happening with Jesus at this point. Because what Jesus has done in denouncing the temple is he's pulled the rug out from under the disciples' feet because a little bit later in the gospel of mark Jesus and the disciples are going to be around the temple and Jesus is going to start telling the disciples and he's already been telling them look I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be put to death and I'm going to suffer many things and the disciples are just really having a difficult time understanding what he's talking about that they had no framework for a messiah that would come and suffer and die that they're expecting him to show up and to be king and reign and they'll get to reign with him and they're really struggling and and they're going to make statements to Jesus like, Jesus, don't worry that uh, these things are going to happen to you. Don't worry that you're going to suffer. Why? Because we have the temple and we have right practice and we're doing the right things. And God is going to be happy with us because we're doing the right things. And what does Jesus do? Jesus comes and he denounces the temple. And what has he taken from the disciples? He's if the temple is gone and if Jesus is right, that this is going to be abolished and this is going to be destroyed, which we'll say later in March. If Jesus is right, then every security that we have that we're right with God is going to be taken from us. Because right now, their security and their hope is we have this temple, we have this place of worship, and this is God's commitment to us that we're right with Him because we can go and we can worship in this place, and we can offer sacrifices, and we can hear teaching, and we can do all of these things, and we know we're right with God. Why? Because this temple is standing, and Jesus tells them, forget about the temple. And in so doing, what does he do? He takes their security away from them. And for many people, where is their security in their relationship with God? Maybe it's not in a temple or a place of worship, but it's in a very similar spot to what the disciples experienced. That when we really think about it, where is our security? Maybe it's not, like I said, exactly what the disciples experienced, but it's in, I do these two or three right things, and so I know that God is happy with me. I know that he's pleased with me. And the reality is, there's going to to come a time We're just like God took the temple away from the people of Israel. God took the security away from the disciples by destroying it. That God's going to take that security away from you. And the reason that's going to happen and the way that's going to happen is this. And this is how I see it in a lot of people at our church. That they get in this mindset of my security and my relationship with God. My relationship with God is about me doing these good things. And because I do these good things, what? God now owes me for that. And so I know that if I do these good things, God's going to be be good to me. And if I do the things I'm supposed to do, I'll be forgiven and God will bless me and God will watch over me. And then something bad happens in their life. And they're completely rattled because their belief was, I was doing the right things and God let this happen. So either God's not there or God's not happy with me or God doesn't love me because their mindset and their security was in, I'm doing this for you, God, so you need to do these good things for me. And Jesus is completely turning that on its head and saying, that's not the way that you need to look at that. Rather than saying, God, I'm doing these good things for you, so you be good to me. Jesus is constantly changing the way that they think and saying, the way you need to think is, I. I can't believe God has been good to me in spite of the kind of person that I am. And that completely changes the way that you see God in the life that you're living. When you shift from God be good to me because I've been good to you and we kind of twist his arm to God shouldn't be good to me at all. that There's sin in my life that I know I messed up, that I know I've screwed up. But in spite of that, God has been good to me anyway and given me grace and offered me forgiveness. Then when those bad times come, it's not God, I was doing this. Why did you let this happen to me? It's I can, I can take this and experience this and deal with this because even though these things are happening, for some reason God has chosen to be good to me. And that's where Jesus is trying to get the disciples at this point. And so the way that we shift that mindset and the way that we begin to think differently about our relationship with God and our experience with God is this. Is that the problem is that for a lot of people that would worship in the temple, they had lost this deep sense of a need for God. And I think this is what a lot of people have lost today, that it's so easy when you've been in the church for a while and been doing good things for a while. Maybe you grew up in a Christian family and you experienced this. You really do begin to trust the good things that you do to make you right with God. You begin to trust where you worship and the way that you worship and the kind of church that you go to and how often you take communion and all of these different things. When Jesus is trying to drive his disciples to, when, when Peter says, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered, Okay, and, and maybe he didn't make the connection yet, but Mark's making the connection for us. Uh, the, the temple that you've abolished, you basically abolished this, you basically walked out on this. This has withered. What's Jesus' response? And this, is, I think, is his response to a lot of us this morning. You have faith in God. That your walk with Jesus doesn't start with, are you doing the right things? It starts with, do you trust God? Do you believe in God? Do you have faith in God? Why? Because the Christian message is summed up in... We messed up. We screwed up. We rebelled against God. We want to be right with Him. And how does that happen? It doesn't happen by you doing the right things or going to church or going to small group that the Bible's pretty clear that you can't do anything to make yourself right with God. And what the Bible is constantly showing us over and over and over again is that the message of the Bible is we screwed up, we can't be right with God, and God comes to make us right with Him. And that God extends us forgiveness and that God sends Jesus who dies for our sin and our rebellion and offers us forgiveness, not because we can be uh, good enough or we do the right things, but simply because out of His love, God extends forgiveness to you when you what? Have faith in God. That's where Jesus was trying to get the disciples. It's been so cool to, to me and my daughter. We've started reading the Bible together at night. We're just right now kind of halfway through Genesis and her little storybook Bible. And I love having these talks with her. And I love some of this starting to click for her. And I know she doesn't get the whole thing. But the thing that I love, the discussion I loved having with her is this. We were talking about Adam and Eve and we were talking about... The lie that the serpent told Eve, and we talked about sin, and we talked about, you know, people uh, didn't listen to God, and they they didn't do the things they were supposed to do, and they messed up. And we get to this last page, and I'm asking her all these questions, and we kind of check in on the stories. And my favorite thing to ask her now is I say, Jordan, what did God promise people? Okay, when the Bible gets to, what's the promise that he made to people? What's he going to do? And to see my daughter, four years old, light up and say, God promised he's going to come get us. And, and at no point do I want her to get to a spot where, what's the promise of the Bible? Well, if, if, Daddy, if I'm good enough that God will accept me. No, she, at this point, we are just hammering, she gets this. Jordan, what's the promise of the Bible? That I messed up, but God promised he's going to come, he's going to come love me and get me. Okay. And to to just hear her understand that and to hear her grasp that something that as we grow up is so difficult to understand because we live in a culture that it really is you're rewarded for what you can do and what you can accomplish and how successful you can be. And that's how you get a job and get a promotion and make money, to believe something that you can't be good enough to get this reward. You can't be good enough to earn this, that it's so difficult for us to understand that in this kind of society. But really Jesus taking the disciples to what forget about the temple, forget about the sacrifice, forget about going to this place to worship. He just frames it there in verse 22. What is this about? Have faith in God. That God has done everything that's necessary for you to be right with Him and you to be loved and you to be forgiven. And when you begin to understand that, what begins to happen? No longer is it, am I being good enough for God to bless me? It really is that mindset change of, I can't believe that God sent Jesus and He died in my place and that I'm right with God simply because of what Jesus has done. And I believe that and I trust that and I have faith in that. That doesn't mean that you stop doing those religious, you don't stop going to church, stop going to the group, stop reading your Bible, but it frees you from, I have to do these things to be right with God too. I get to do these things because God loves me and saved me and out of that I want to worship him for the good things that he's done for me. And it completely changes the way we think about ourselves and other people. And instead of saying, if you're going to be right with God, you need to be as spiritual and religious as I am. We can bring all people in because we're not pointing them to be as holy as I am. We're pointing them to look at what Jesus has done and look at what Jesus has done for me. And rather than keeping the Gentiles out in the temple, it should have been look at how good God has been to us. And he chose us and he's led us. And we want to invite you to come in and celebrate that with us. Not we want to invite you to come in and be like we are and practice what we practice and do what we do. And if not, you need to get out that the Bible is constantly look at how good God has been to this group of people. Let's invite as many people as possible to celebrate how good God has been to us. And that completely would have changed the way that they saw the temple and the way that they experienced security with God. And so there's a couple of ways that this might impact you this morning. When we're thinking about this, if you're not a Christian, I need you to understand this this morning. I don't know where any of you are at, but if you're not, you need to understand this. That this morning, becoming a Christian is not about, I'm going to get life cleaned up and then I'm going to come to Jesus. I talk to so many people that that's that's what they say. I'll come to church when I get this figured out, I get my act cleaned up, I get my stuff together. That's constantly what, what some people are thinking. And I need you to understand this, that coming to Jesus isn't about getting cleaned up. It's what? Having faith in God. That God has done what He's promised to do. That God has come to save us. That God has come to forgive us. That God has come to offer us this new life. And what does He demand from you? Do you believe and trust that He's done that? Do you have that faith in God that Jesus is calling for in Mark chapter 11? That for some people, uh, you've been trusting in, in what you do to be set free. You've been trusting in what you do for that relationship with God. And honestly, right now, you're in the spot that the fig tree was in and the temple was in and the disciples were in. That if people looked at your life, they would say, that person's holy, that person's spiritual, that person's right with God. Look at how good they are. Look at all of these religious things that they do. And if people knew what was behind that and really looked at your life, they would say, why is there no fruit there? Why isn't love for God growing? Why aren't people coming to meet Jesus because of me? That there'd be these honest questions of, you really do look like you have it all together. And your security has been in the kinds of things that you do. But if you're being honest with yourself, maybe it's been months, days, or years since you could say, I look a lot more like Jesus now than I did back then. And that doesn't come from being a more disciplined person. That comes from having faith in God and trusting Him to change you. And the only way that begins to happen is when you give up this idea that you're right with God because of the things that you do, and that you're right with God because you have faith that He sent Jesus and you're forgiven because of what Jesus has done. Some of you could be set free this morning from feeling like, just beat yourself up when you're not as disciplined as you should be. You beat yourself up when you don't follow the rules that you've set up for yourself. When in reality, that's not the way that God looks at his relationship with you, that he knows there's going to be mistakes. He knows there's going to be sin in your life. So what has he done? He's made a way to keep that relationship together in spite of that. And that sets you free from constantly feeling guilty and beating on yourself and free to love God and serve others. And no, I might make mistakes, but my relationship with God is not dependent on that. It's dependent on God coming to rescue me and me having faith in Him. And finally, for some, if you're, if you're frustrated there hasn't been change in your life. And maybe you say, I'm just in this spot and I've been doing this stuff and change hasn't been happening and I haven't been growing and I talk to so many people that that's their reality. Again, like the people I just talked to, I would say, has your trust and hope been in the wrong place? And have you felt a deep need for God in your life? Or, or honestly, where most of us can slide into is we don't depend on God to save us, but we depend on the things that we do. And we depend on our religious practice and our spirituality to save us. And there are Christians that have been going to church and reading their Bible and doing spiritual things for a long time. But it's been a long time since you felt a need for God in your life. And it's been a long time since you felt that desire of, I need God to move and to work and to do something because without Him, I'm lost and there's no forgiveness and I'm separated from Him. That for some of you, that's where you need to start. If you want to start... Real change real fruit coming into your life It's not going to start by you being more disciplined Or reading another book or following another rule or getting up earlier It's going to be from do I feel a need for god Do I have faith that he's going to change me and trusting in him to do those work to do that work in my life That only he can do We're about to have a time of communion and the band's going to come up Okay, and you can do a number of things during this time one once the song starts starts Um, After I wrap up here, the servers are going to come. And there's going to be um, uh, some bread and some juice that comes around. Um, And when you receive that, we encourage you to take it. You can hang on to it. Spend some time in prayer. Spend some time asking, do I sense a need for God? That communion is this opportunity that we have weekly to come to Jesus and to say, we know that we need you. We're reminding ourselves that we need you. Uh, And Jesus said, that's the reason I've given you communion. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this to remember that you needed me to die in your place to save you, to forgive you, to offer you a relationship with me. So take a piece of bread, take a cup of juice, and whenever you're ready, whenever you've spent some time with God, if you're following Jesus, we encourage you to take communion and a little later some baskets will come around to drop that stuff off. But for some of you, I don't know where you're at, maybe you need to spend some time with God this morning, maybe for the first time you're going to ask God to be the one that's moved and worked in your life. Maybe you need to repent of some sin in your life that you haven't been trusting in God and you've been trusting in yourself, whatever it is. Spend some time now with Jesus. Spend some time asking the question and following Jesus, is there real fruit in my life? Or like this tree and like this temple, is there a lot of fake fruit? And I know that I look good on the outside, but if people really looked inside, they wouldn't see what should be there. And, and just spend some time dealing with God and wrestling with Jesus about that. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing and have communion. Father, thank you so much for this morning and our time together. God, I pray that in this moment that we have now to worship and to to share in communion and to spend some time with you, that you would just give us an honest assessment of our hearts and our lives and our minds. And, God, we would really wrestle with where is our trust and where is our hope and where is our security. Father, we pray that you would just stir up in some people now that if their trust has been misplaced, if their security has been misplaced. Father, that you would become that, that they would see that you are the one who gives grace, that you are the one who offers forgiveness, that you are the one that has made them right with you. Father, we love you. We pray that you would work and you would move in this place this morning, that you'd be honored by our worship. We ask this all in your son's name. Amen.